Welcome to Capital Close-Up. I'm Paul Hodes. We're broadcast on WKXL AM and FM, and we are podcast wherever you find your podcasts. You can check us out under the umbrella of Beyond Politics, because we go beyond politics to talk about things that really matter to people. I'm really delighted to have as my guest this morning, Zandra Rice Hawkins. Uh, Zandra is the founding executive director of Granite State Progress. She was named the Business and Professional Woman of New Hampshire's 2009 Young Careerist, among many honors, including New Hampshire Citizens Alliance Organizational Partner of the Year Award, the New Hampshire Young Democrats Granite State Progressive of the Year Award, the Merrimack County Democrats Mary Louise Hancock Awardee in 2019. And for all of us who knew Mary Louise Hancock, that is a distinguished honor because Mary Louise Hancock was the bomb. Zandra uh, is honored to have been part of two Business Ethics Network Benny Award-winning campaigns, the Think Outside the Bottle campaign and the Alec Exposed campaign. She serves on the America Votes New Hampshire Executive Workgroup, convenes the New Hampshire Healthcare Coalition and the New Hampshire Gun Violence Prevention Coalition. She's active in her local showing up for Racial Justice Committee. Sandra previously served as a member of the New Hampshire Democratic Party Platform Committee in 2018. She lives in Concord with her husband, Brian, and two young children. She's a Concord city councilor because she doesn't have enough to do. And she's a member of the Public Safety Advisory Committee, the Waste Management Advisory Committee, the Everett Arena Advisory Committee and Transportation Policy Advisory Committee. She serves as treasurer of the Millbrook School PTA. Zandra, you are perhaps one of the busiest people <laughs> I have ever interviewed before. That's so, uh, you know, I what, find that hard to believe in New Hampshire citizen legislature. <laughs> I know, you know, there's, there's, there's uh, everybody, New Hampshire people are pretty busy. We, We're pretty we, busy crew. We seem to, we seem to be very project oriented and but I have to hand it to you. It's really um, an extra, it's an extraordinary biography because it really speaks to your passion for service, for public service, uh, and for trying to move our state and nation forward on really important issues. So I'm, I'm curious, so you're a person of tender years. I mean, you're you're a young person to have accumulated so many honors. What 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 drives you? What 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 in your background led you to a life of such dedication to trying to move the ball forward? Um, you know, it's a great question. I think there's so many different factors for so many people who enter public service or do this work. And for me, definitely my childhood and upbringing, my parents, you know, were very active. My dad was a union steward in his shop. He's a lineman. Uh, he's a proud member of the IBW. My mom was always at a PTA fundraiser. She ran 
um, the events down at the um, local parks and recreation. She, you know, I was on the phone as a middle schooler um, talking to people about passing the bond and levy for our school district. So I think that engagement at an early age for me really helped show that if you get involved in your community, you can make a difference. Um, and it could be small things, you know, putting on, um, you know, a, an event at the school to bring families together, or it can be big things like funding our school district so that we all have access to updated textbooks and things of that nature. But what really shifted me from more direct service work to um, it, more public policy and advocacy is that I did, as many young people um, throughout high school and college, did a lot of work around hunger and homelessness. And I think an experience like that really shows you that there are just systems of, um, you know, th that kind of perpetuate these cycles of poverty and homelessness. And you see the same people come in day in, day, day in and day out, and you want to figure out how do you help them get out of that situation, what institutional barriers exist. And for me, that's always been a motivating factor. Um, it's great to do and so critical to have um, those direct service pieces, but how can we get to the root issues? And I will say as a, um, you know, as a white woman, uh, I will uh, admit that there are a lot of experiences I haven't had that, and especially over the last couple of years, um, even with all the work I've done, I, one of the things I'm most excited about uh, in our country right now is this reckoning we've had around racial injustice and starting to come to terms and people understanding more what needs to be done. And, um, you know, I'm still learning myself. I think we're all learning every day about how to do this work better, how to be better neighbors uh, and community members. Yeah. Well, um, we are certainly living in extraordinary times. Um, uh, you know, there, I forget what, what philosopher wished upon us, may you live in interesting times. And we certainly are, uh, as a nation, we've experienced a transition in the political leadership at the top that could not be a more stark contrast from one a catastrophic administration to another, which really has their foot on the gas in terms of trying to get us back on track here in New Hampshire. Um, 2020, the 2020 election saw a takeover by the Republican Party of all levers of our state government, uh, the corner office, the uh, New Hampshire House, which is the fourth largest legislative body in the English speaking world. There's the U.S. Congress, the British Parliament, the India's Congress, and the New Hampshire legislature. A, a distinction of, uh, of numbers, but not necessarily uh, of direction, given, given what's gone on. The Republicans also took over the Senate. They took over the Executive Council. And we are just beginning to see some of the consequences of the takeover. But before we plunge in, to some of the topics today about wealth and inequality and uh, injustice and justice and some of the bills. Uh, to talk to us a little bit about Granite State Progress, which you founded. What is it? What does it do? Uh, and how does it work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Grant State Progress, uh, we founded it uh, way back in 2008 now. Um, I was hired to uh, start the organization and we serve essentially as a progressive communications and research hub. Um, what that means is we put together um, 
media campaigns for issues uh, that either uh, to help support progressive partners in the community or uh, what we call a messenger of last resort. So if there is a progressive issue in the community that needs a champion and doesn't have one, it is um, our mandate and mission to become that uh, entity. And so that's how we have ended up um, leading gun violence prevention work, for example, or a few years back, um, we helped after the Trump administration cut um, enrollment uh, publicity and outreach for the Affordable Care Act. Our organization stepped in and actually ran a public education and publicity campaign, um, you know, with the, the great support of local donors um, to be able to do that uh, and helped save uh, with 100, over 100 volunteers um, the Affordable Care Act enrollment in New Hampshire, which we're very proud of. Um, and then we do original research. So if you go to our website, you can get the vote records um, for the state legislature from 2011 on. Um, so a 10 years worth of vote records at this point. Um, and it's broken down by issue and it's in layman's terms and we say what happened with the bill. And um, you know we do that around our ALEC exposed research. We have a track around free state project research. Our organization has been tracking um, extremist movements and, and militias over the past year. And so when everything happened down in DC, uh, we went on the road with a tour to talk to folks about what we know um, are some of those movements in New Hampshire, how uh, politicians like Chris Sununu, uh, if you go to our complicit chrisnunu.com website, you can see all the ways that he has coddled white nationalists, extremist movements, armed uh, militias in the state, and then opportunities to take action um, to try to push back on that. And what is the website address? Uh, uh, www.granitestateprogress.org. And from there, you can get to a lot of our microsites for specific campaigns. Well, it's, that's, it's really important because you're doing really, you're doing vital work. So let's turn our attention to a pretty big topic. Um, in uh, New Hampshire, it's very interesting. In New Hampshire in um, 2019, um, New Hampshire saw one of the biggest spikes in wealth inequality in the nation. Uh, it was one of nine states that showed these really big spikes. And people don't necessarily think of New Hampshire as a, a place of wealth inequality. In a way, it's hidden. But uh, I recently saw um, a report uh, that said one in 11 people in New Hampshire are experiencing food insecurity, that huge numbers of households um, of, uh, of people who are experiencing food insecurity and going hungry are households with kids. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, um, you know, the number of households in New Hampshire is about 135 or 40,000 people who are uh, food insecure. That, that's, and and it's, a, it's been a rising number, especially with COVID. COVID, the pandemic has clobbered not only our country, but it's clobbered uh, New Hampshire in terms of hunger, in terms of homelessness, in terms of people now out of work, uh, and in terms of the incredible wealth gap that we see between those who are doing really, really well, the very, very top, and, and everybody else who's struggling to get along. Uh, and in preparation for today's show, you sent me um, a pretty fascinating 
a pretty fascinating report from the Institute for Policy Studies about wealth uh, in the United States that, that certainly is no stranger to New Hampshire. Talk to us in broad, first in broad strokes about what that report shows and why it's important. Yeah, so, um, and it is, it's a fascinating and alarming report. Um, it's from our friends at the Institute um, for Policy Studies and the Americans for Tax Fairness. And Americans for Tax Fairness is a great group that we've worked with on and off um, for quite a while that really tracks um, the growth of wealth um, inequality in the state. And they talk about some of the revenue options that we have um, at federal and state levels and the investments we can make to really shore up um, areas like you talked about, you know, food insecurity, why why do we have families who, who don't have enough food to eat in a country that is so wealthy? Um, they put together a report, uh, an updated report in January that talked about the growth of wealth um, for the uh, top percent in our company or in our country. And what's really fascinating about it is not only did the wealthy um, earn um, so much more during the pandemic. So they saw their wealth grow by 1.1 trillion. We actually added 46 new billionaires um, in the US during the first 10 months of the COVID-19 pandemic. Meanwhile, as we all know, um, unemployment, food insecurity, um, homelessness has really grown um, both here in New Hampshire and across the the country. And so one of the arguments um, that the report kind of lays out is what those investments could mean for so many uh, American families, while at the same time not really affecting any of the income that um, those at the top had prior to the COVID pandemic. And so they make this case that with that 1.1 trillion, how much investment could be made from President Biden's 1.9 trillion COVID relief package that really seeks to get money to those families immediately for urgent needs. So let me just, let's stop there for a second because we're talking about numbers that that strain the imagination. Okay, mm -hmm. it it's very very challenging to to put these numbers into context. Okay, so I get a million dollars. Okay, there's a one and there's six zeros, so that's one million dollars. Now to get to a billion dollars. If I'm not mistaken, you need a hundred million dollars to get to a billion dollars. So folks, just let's just stop for a moment. Well, one million dollars, that's that's a lot of money. And a billion, just a single billion dollars. And remember now a billion dollars doesn't go as far as it used to. It's the kind of thing now these days. Um, you know, when your grandmother gives you a billion dollars, she says, here's a billion dollars. Don't spend it all in one place. And, and you say, OK, grandma, I'll be really careful because it's only a billion dollars. That's a hundred million to get to a trillion dollars. Is it is that a hundred billion dollars to get to a trillion dollars? It is so much money and it is it's really hard to fathom. And I think particularly for those of us who, you know, are making rather middle income mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, salaries or for those who really are struggling to get by at all. It, it is almost like play money when you talk about it. But really for these individuals, the amount of money they have and how far above it is from the, the average American experience, it, it just goes to show that really those at the top have not 
um, have not supported back, made the investments or made decisions to really help their country in a time of, of an incredible emergency between the public health pandemic, between you know the, the racial injustice reckoning, when we look at institutional barriers, there are so many folks with so much money who could be doing more. So, so let's just, let, uh, to be fair to the long-suffering uh, billionaires uh, uh, among us, um, public policy has not uh, helped those billionaires in their efforts, what, what, what their efforts may be to give back. I mean, there are examples of great philanthropy among, as my friend Bernie Sanders would say, the millionaires and the billionaires. The billionaires, there are many billionaires who, who are giving back. You know, there are billionaires who, are, who give back. On the other hand, you have the great uh, disastrous tax cuts of 2017 that President Trump put in, in which 83 cents of every dollar went to the very, very top of the of the food chain, so to speak, enough to pay for most, if not all, of the COVID relief. And those tax cuts clearly have had an impact because the collective wealth of American billionaires is up almost 40% during the past 10 months of national emergency. Folks, listen, I'll, let me just repeat that in my outrage. That has, there the wealth of Americans billionaires up nearly 40% just in 10 months. So uh, there are 46 new billionaires since the beginning of the pandemic and at $4.1 trillion, the total wealth of America's 660 billionaires is two-thirds higher than the entire wealth held by the bottom 55% of the American population. That's 165 million Americans. So 660 billionaires, it's two, I mean, it's, at, at versus 165 million Americans. So it's a staggering number. What Zandra Rice Hawkins accounted for the 10 month bump mm -hmm. in this already insane inequality gap? Yeah, I mean, you know, certainly um, bad tax policies over the years that have continued to do corporate tax giveaways and to allow those at the top to continue to grow their wealth while taking from those at the bottom. Um, you mentioned the 2017 GOP tax plan that that was a horrible bill that, um, you know, you had people from the disability rights community down protesting outside of um, congressional offices and talking about what that impact would be on their family, you know, healthcare advocates very, very concerned about what was in the bill. Um, and and those um, those calls and those pleas were not heard. And then you translate into situations like now where you really see that income inequality continuing to grow. And, you know, one of the things that we're most concerned about over the, you know, we're going into state budget and municipal budget seasons, you're going to have more calls to cut um, the service programs that help those who are struggling to get by already. Um, at the same time, we see this 
rapid growth uh, for, for the wealthiest. Now, I will say that the 10 month bump probably comes from a confluence of factors. And we'll know more once people put out, you know, more of their, um, their annual reports. But, you know, basically, you've got um, less competition, we had some businesses that folded. So those who were in sectors where that happened, and they were, you know, um, owned businesses where they were able to take up some more of their competitor space, or who benefited, you know, Amazon, for example, obviously benefited a lot during the pandemic, people were starting to order more online rather than go out to physical stores in their communities. Um, so all those types of things that help influence it, but it really comes back to the tax policies in this country and whether or not we're going to make investments in all of us, or we're going to continue to do corporate tax giveaways that give the wealthiest more. So why, in terms of tax policy, shouldn't those individuals who are taking advantage of the great American capitalist system simply be allowed to enjoy their wealth? I mean, why isn't it just like trying to turn us into Venezuela? Aren't you just espousing socialist rhetoric when you talk about redistributing wealth in this country? I mean, it doesn't that go against the great American grain? I have to say, I really appreciate and so admire those who are in situations where um, they have used their position of wealth to talk about um, equitable distribution and to make sure that our, we have more fair tax policies. Um, you know, businesses for social responsibility, they're making investments in their workers and their local communities and trying to help change those systems. Um, but we certainly need more of that. And I think we need in our state and, and federal um, policies, we need to make sure that we're making the investments we need. And you're going to hear time and again this spring, you know, cut, cut, cut business taxes, for example. Well, you know, I want to support local small businesses, but some of these, you know, larger uh, multinational companies, these um, individuals who have accumulated more wealth during the 10 months of the pandemic, um, I think that they could do with um, some policies that help make sure that those who are working or living in the communities in which they operate um, can put food on the table and a roof over their head. Just to point up some of what we're, we've been talking about, uh, which is that in the past 10 months, of the pandemic. Just since the pandemic, uh, there is a staggering $1.1 trillion growth in the collective wealth of America's billionaires. 64 freshly minted members of the Billionaires Club. And just to put it in perspective for a minute. So, of course, as we talked about during the pandemic, people are home and they're ordering more from online sources as opposed to going out to bricks and mortars. Small businesses are failing. Main streets are boarding up and shuttering up. People have lost their jobs. Everything is topsy-turvy. But for Jeff Bezos, Jeff has done pretty well. His wealth growth in the billions is 68.5 billion dollars. This is like this is like fantasy land. 68.5 billion dollars. Elon Musk. Now, he's a pretty interesting guy. He's he's a great inventor. His wealth is increased by $154 billion in the past 10 months. Bill Gates, $22 billion. Mark Zuckerberg on Facebook, the purveyor of Russian trolls. 
that controls our life, the, the information capitalist of all time, young Mark Zuckerberg, he's increased his wealth by $37.4 billion. And, and I could go down, down the list. There is not any of the top billionaires who've seen any challenge to their wealth. Instead, it has increased. But here at home, um, here at home, we have a $7.25 minimum wage in New Hampshire. It follows the national minimum wage, which is still set at $7.25. And as part of the uh, uh, COVID package, the president has proposed a gradual increase of that federal minimum wage over four years to $15 billion. There's a lot of back and forth about whether it would cost jobs or not cost jobs in New Hampshire. We proudly have stuck to our a minimum wage. Why, what, what would a rise in the minimum wage do? Why is it important? And would it do anything to close this wealth gap um, in any way for those at the bottom of the wealth pyramid? Well, let, let's just first point out the obvious that in this local control state, we are relying on the federal minimum wage because we are not brave enough or don't have the political will from folks like Governor Chris Nunu to raise that wage. Um, and we know that increasing the minimum wage, one, is the right thing to do for working families, but also it is an investment in our future. So if you are not paying somebody enough to be able to afford their own rent or home, to be able to purchase just their own food, then we're going to have to have more social service programs to fill those gaps, which is essentially we talk about as, you know, uh, welfare programs, but it's corporate welfare programs. It's businesses not paying their workers enough, profiting um, and not sharing in that profit, and then relying on government subsidies to help these individuals make ends meet. If we pay people a fair wage, and I will say $15 an hour is a great, great start. It is not a living wage, and we need to continue to work on that. But nobody should be working 40 hours a week and not be able to afford um, the basic things that we all need in life. That is just such a strange concept in this land of the free and the home of the brave. I mean, really, let me just push back at you for a moment, but just think about the businesses that, 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 that can't pay people $15 an hour and what it means. Wouldn't you lose businesses? Won't, pe won't people suffer and go, go out of business if they have to pay $15 an hour, let alone pay their employees for things like health care, let alone do your income tax, you progressives, by, by offering people paid family and medical leave? What do you... Are you trying to make us Sweden? What, what's going on here with all these policies? They're just, it's just socialist policy. You know, I've got to say, it's very interesting to have this conversation right now because over the weekend we watched um, Newsies with our kids. You know, Newsies is a great you know, show and it talks about the, the, um, uh, the newspaper sellers coming together because they're protesting an increase in the price of the newspaper and the, you know, also the wealthy can make more. And, you know, explaining to my daughter, she had questions through the movie is so similar <laughs> to any time I talk about tax policy. It's some people are greedy and, and they're, you know, they want to hold on um, 
to their money and they don't want to make sure that everybody who's participating is getting their fair share. And that's really what it comes down to. People need to get their fair share for the investment they put in building up um, these companies or um, these profits. And that is not happening in our country. And we all know it. And it's been going on for too long. Now, I do think that local small businesses will need some transition period, because let's be honest, when we're talking about the the uh, the, the rapid growth and profits, those are for the big companies. And that has been going on for far too long. But putting more money in the pockets of people who live in our community means more money for our local community. And you see this time and again, studies have shown that when people have uh, when they're not struggling to get by, you know, they're they're making purchases that benefit the whole community and those dollars are getting circulated. Um, but we've also seen studies where the minimum wage has gone up in other um, communities. And the result is not what these doomsday forecasters who don't want the change always pro you know, promise is going to happen. Instead, you do see that investment. You see people being able to move themselves um, up and have, uh, you know, upward mobility. And those are the types of things that we need to be doing in our state. You know, I, 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 I'm, I'm, so, I'm being somewhat facetious in my, in my push, oh. <laughs> except, except that the arguments that I advanced and the rhetoric I used are what we hear time and time again. It seems that um, the political dialogue has, has come down to uh, anything you want to do to lift all boats is a so is socialist propaganda. We don't want to have any of that. That our great cap, our great capitalist society, uh, requires that we let the markets run however the markets want to run, and uh, it's Darwinian survival of the fittest. Um, but that's that argument is really specious, uh, as you pointed out over the past forty years. What we have witnessed is the rise of a strain of capitalism, which has long been recognized by economists and every thinking a person, a strain of capitalism, which actually is kind of a runaway greedy strain of capitalism, uh, which has produced this insane wealth gap. A country cannot exist with poor people and super wealthy. Uh, that way lies the kind of anger, dysfunction, isolation, um, and uh, violence that in some ways uh, can be seen to be at the heart of the crazy right rise of right-wing extremism. It's just been turned on its head. And when autocrats and dictators and fascist leaders can mobilize the anger of a mob which has been left behind because their jobs are gone, their factories are gone, their communities are broken, addiction uh, to drugs and alcohol replace productive work, and an autocrat can turn that mob's anger towards others, as has been done by Trump in this country, the inevitable result is societal chaos. Contrast that with a fair and progressive tax policy, which would simply say to the multitude of billionaires among us, how many billions are enough? And especially at a time of national emergency, what's a fair approach 
to the fact that we all live in society together. We are all in this together. The healthcare of every single one of us affects your healthcare, you billionaire person, because you never know. You have to cross the street just like we do. Those streets are maintained by governments and we all contribute. And the person standing next to you may be a carrier of some disease that ends up killing you. So it's in your interest to make sure that that person is well fed, has a place to live, has access to universal health care, just like you do. And what's a fair tax policy to accomplish that? Now, it wasn't so long ago that those at the very top of the wealth pyramid uh, were enjoyed their wealth, but also paid very significantly higher tax rates than we currently have seen. People seem to forget that. Yeah, and you know, and, and again, going back to where we started this conversation about how unfathomable it is for some of us to even conceive of the numbers of. of wealth that some of these individuals have, you know, having fair um, tax policy is not going to dramatically change the quality of life for those individuals. They're still going to relish in the success they had, but they're going to do so in a way that more of our community also is not struggling each day just to, to make ends meet. Um, a couple of the policies that have been proposed um, in this, uh, this new session at the federal level, an annual wealth tax on the biggest um, fortunes that was proposed by Senator um, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. And then another option is an annual taxation and investment gains on stocks and other tradable assets. Um, and I think those are a couple of policies that really could do a lot to help um, ensure that those who are the wealthiest in our, um, in our country are paying their fair share of taxes and moving us more towards being able to make those investments that we know all of us need. So you mentioned paid family leave policies, childcare, uh, food insecurity, addressing those concerns. Those are why we need those tax dollars to be able to make sure that everyone in our community uh, is able to enjoy a quality of life that they, are des that they deserve. And let me just point out that those things you've mentioned those policies which seek to secure and provide not a handout, but a hand up mm -hmm. for those who really um, need that kind of support um, mean that it's not a cost, it's not a handout, it's an investment in the long-term sustainability of our entire system mm -hmm. because you know, a, a capitalist system where free markets run wild is produces exactly what we've got. And what you really need is the government to be that bulwark for people. Abraham Lincoln, and I, I'm paraphrasing, um, said the purpose of government is to do uh, what the market cannot or will not do for the people. In other words, um, that the, the long-running dispute in our country between an activist federal government and let's just leave it all to the markets and let it run is at the core of what we are dealing with now. And for at least 40 years, our government uh, under a relentless assault from the right and Republicans has cut back further and further its role as the protector of people. And now with the pandemic, we are 
having that uh, uh, discussion without really saying what it's about. The fact is the $1.9 trillion COVID relief plan that President Biden proposes, it is not a stimulus. It's not a handout. It's, it, it, it's, it, it's what we need to help people in a country where 100,000 businesses have permanently closed, 73 million people lost work during the pandemic. Um, and this country is hurting. And while the country is hurting, the billionaires have been making out like bandits. Mm -hmm. What's going on at the state level with, with, with this? What's going on? What are we doing in New Hampshire? What is what are what are our Republican legislators focused on to well, help close the inequality gap? I would like to say that there were, there are more policies at the state level to do that. Unfortunately, that is not where we're seeing a lot of the the focus from um, some of our uh, Republican state legislators. You know, I've been in bills over the past couple of weeks to. Um, you know, further loosen our already extremely lax firearms public safety laws um, to uh, prevent uh, K through 12 schools, college, uh, public colleges and universities, uh, state agencies and contractors from um, teaching and learning about things like implicit bias, uh, racism, sexism, how it impacts institutions. When you talk about the COVID pandemic, one of the realities is that, um, you know, it has disproportionately impacted uh, women and people of color. And particularly if you are a woman of color, you're, you're probably uh, suffering the most from um, you know, poor policies over the years that have contributed to that. We have lost a, uh, you know, a lot of women in the workforce because they cannot get uh, reliable childcare right now um, because with, um, you know, you've got a COVID denier caucus at the state house at the same time we're trying to keep our schools and our kids engaged. And, you know, we could all be doing a lot more to pull together as a community and do these um, policies that make sense. But instead, um, that's the focus of where some of their bills have been. And Chris New just put out a state budget. We're still going through it, but I can tell you right now, there is a lot of reliance on federal dollars. It, there is nothing to help property poor um, taxpayers and communities and um, he is trying to cut some of the, the business taxes in the state without um, properly trying to look at um, how to shore up some of the services we need. How in at a time of pandemic, when businesses are closed, when people have been unemployed, when federal money is always short lived, uh, it may be it may provide a one time boost. How do we justify cutting business taxes at this time in a state where the two taxes we rely on for funding education and services and state government are property taxes and the business taxes? Those are the those are the two uh, those are the two uh, big things. I mean, is 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 this snake oil? Is the governor <laughs> selling? Is the governor selling us snake oil, Zandra Rice Hawkins? Well, I've got to say, if, if people have not read it already, definitely go to In-Depth New Hampshire, which um, is a really great investigative journalism um, outfit in New Hampshire. And they have um, a story by Gary Reno, who does their state uh, distant dome column, who talks about every governor of every party 
you know, promises rainbows and puppies when they do their budget announcement. And then you really have to look at the details. And he does a really strong analysis of what is in the budget and is not in the budget. Um, and I think that, um, you know, we're not putting our focus on the right policies right now in the state budget. That's clear. And I'm really hopeful when the legislature takes a look at it that they will make the adjustments we need. But on the business tax front, for example, the, the, the difference for an individual business or a consumer is not going to be that um, big of a change, frankly, but what it is going to affect is the programs and services that those dollars funded. And we, um, we've already, uh, you know, as you mentioned, again, food insecurity and other things going on in our uh, state right now, state and nation, we really need to make sure that families have the resources they need to survive. And it is literally about survival that, that there's, that is not hyperbole. Some people are struggling to survive right now. So I just, uh, one, one of the provisions I saw um, from the governor's budget was to cut the state financing contribution to the uh, small business program at UNH, which uh, is required uh, from the state in order to receive federal matching dollars, which is the, the agency in the state uh, that helps small businesses, innovation, entrepreneurs, um, in all kinds of ways to found businesses, to understand how to conduct businesses, to interface with the federal government around help for small businesses. It is sort of the essential engine. Um, it's an essential engine of small business uh, innovation and entrepreneurship in, in the state. How does the governor justify a cutting that program uh, in terms of the future of the state? I mean, I don't think there is a justification for it, and the governor is certainly going to try for one. But we've also got this situation right now, you know, and I think it's, it's very similar for some of the small businesses in our community as it is for some of the families. You, you know, when, when the COVID um, public health pandemic first came up, none of us knew what the future was going to hold, right? And so you made some short-term decisions and then you kind of adjusted those in the summer. You adjusted them in the fall. And you've got a lot of businesses that we've been reading about who kind of took a, you know, a hibernation um, over the winter and they decided to, you know, either close their business temporarily or to make renovations and things like that, hoping that the spring will be better. And we really need, um, we really need supports and uh, opportunities for small businesses to be able to reopen uh, this spring or the summer and to get back to capacity. And I think having, uh, you know, departments and programs that can really help those small businesses as they're trying to get back on their feet is really critically important. And while, while you and I are talking, just to highlight in the last minute or so for folks, here's what the legislators are focused on. They've got House Bill 544 to make sure that nobody can learn about racism or sexism in our state. That must be really an important piece of business for them. They want to prevent the teaching of anything having to do with race or sex in the state. Then they've got House Bill 198. They want to make sure that no transgender person can play ball uh, at our universities. That's really important to make sure that we 
put down transgender people. They don't want to do anything for hunger. They don't want to contribute to education uh, or ch fix our education system. So all in all, folks, we've just scratched the surface with our guest, Sandra Rice Hawkins of Granite State Progress. Thanks for joining us, Sandra. We're gonna, we're gonna have you as a regular guest. It's Capital <laughs> Close-Up with Paul Hodes, uh, WKXL. Catch us on our Beyond Politics podcast. We'll be back next week.